This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. On today's show, we'll look at a more targeted way of using radiotherapy for cancer that's spread to other parts of the body. Sunburns so bad they need specialist burns units. Who's most at risk? A relatively quick and cheap way to assess the next generation of COVID vaccines. And a topic we've covered several times on the health report, unexplained variations in care. Why does the rate of certain operations or treatments vary across Australia, even though the people experiencing the medical problems are the same? Tegan? Yes, a recent report that's looked at lots of different facets of Australian healthcare has found that a large proportion of births that happen in the weeks before baby's due dates aren't happening because of medical reasons. Sometimes babies do need to be born early because either mother or baby's health is at risk, or sometimes they just decide to come early and mum goes into labour. But in this instance, we're talking about caesareans and inductions that happen seemingly without medical or obstetric reasons. And experts say it's an issue because being born early increases babies' risks of breathing and feeding problems at birth and learning difficulties when they start school. The report is the fourth Australian Atlas of Healthcare Variation and one of its authors joins us. Welcome, Anne Duggan. Thank you. So this report, the first chapter of this report is focusing on births that happen from around the 37th week of pregnancy onwards and indicating that it's a problem if babies are starting to be born this early without good uh, medical reasons. What is happening in these last two or three weeks of pregnancy that has experts concerned? Well, we have become much more aware of the importance of the baby's brain and their lungs and their whole body maturing. And when babies are born too early, and some babies just spontaneously born early, but when they're, they're, they're electively born early, there's a risk that could be prevented if they were allowed to develop. So if they're born early, they're more likely to have jaundice, they're more likely to have low blood sugars, they're more likely to have immature lungs and need to go to a neonatal intensive care. They're more likely to have feeding problems. But that's not the only problem. As they grow up, there's evidence that if kids that are born by early caesarean section are more likely to be hospitalised with infections. And when they go to school they're more likely to have numeracy problems, literacy problems, and they're more likely to have attention deficit hyperactive disorder. So it's suggesting that the baby really does need to develop its brain and have time to develop its other organs. And that's the the benefit of allowing it to get to full maturity. Now, as you said, there are some babies that need to be born because they've got problems or their mother's got problems. But what we looked at was the early elective caesarean and the, the induction of labour where we couldn't, there was no recorded medical obstetric reason for it. Right. So, I mean, 37 weeks of pregnancy used to be considered full term. What's changed? Yes. Uh, pre-2010, there was the view that term was somewhere between 37 and 40 weeks, but it, that's very much changed. And the definition now is that 37 and 38, 38 weeks is early term. Full term is 39 and 40 weeks. And if you look across the world, there's guidelines in the UK and America uh, and here in Australia, the Royal Australian College of uh, Obstetricians and Gynecologists are saying that they sh- babies should be born at approximately 39 weeks because the evidence has evolved and it's now quite much clearer that babies need that extra time. I've had two babies since 2010 and I don't remember sort of being told this by my healthcare providers. Do you think there needs to be more done to advertise this? Absolutely, absolutely. We need to make sure that uh, women 
are having that conversation with their obstetrician, trying to get that balance right because obviously there's other concerns if you live a long way from your doctor or if you're worried about stillbirth. There, there needs to really be an informed discussion and informed consent about the timing. And hospitals need to support that to make sure that women are getting the information they need, but that, that people aren't able to book if, in fact, there hasn't been a, a, a good discussion and a good rationale for why the decision's been made earlier than recommended time. I think there's a number of things that can be done to make this much clearer. And we need to collect the data because it's affecting so many children. Right. So let's talk about that. We've talked about the fact that this is about variation in Australian healthcare. How did it vary across different sectors of Australia? So in this uh, item, we looked at the the rates by state and territory. And there were, there were seven states and territory who contributed their data to it. And the data is slightly different between the, the way they collect it between different states and territories. So it would be not fair to com- to compare and contrast the states in, uh, and uh, against each other. But what we did find, no matter which state or territory we looked at, the rates were really quite high. So for less than 39 weeks, between 43 and 56% of uh, planned caesareans were without or a medical or obstetric reason uh, uh, documented. And if you go back to th- less than 38 weeks, the rate was between 25 and 33%. So it's high and we really do need these states and territories to go back to their data, look at what's going on and and try and address it. And there are some good things going on in the country. There is in New South Wales, for example, Every Week Counts, which is a a campaign. And and in uh, Western Australia, there's the the whole nine months initiative. So there's a recognition in different parts of the country of how important it is and and, uh, work is being done. But there's obviously a need for more work to be done with some urgency. How did it differ between the public and private sectors? In some states, the rates were higher in the private sector, which I thought was rather interesting because one of the things we know about the public sector is there's often pressure on theatres and sometimes the decision may be not exactly what we want because you need theatre access. And you would expect that in the private sector there might be easier access to theatres so that babies could be born exactly when uh, it's best for the baby rather than earlier. So that surprised me. It didn't occur in every state and territory, though. You mentioned theatres. Are there certain types of doctor or healthcare provider that are more persuasive than others when it comes to scheduling of caesareans like anaesthetists? Well, I think anaesthetists play a role, but uh, often they're, um, they're, they, the conversation's occurring when it's about to happen. But certainly theatre managers can certainly um, make sure that, and, and hospitals can certainly, who run the theatres, can certainly make sure that theatres are available when they're needed. We, a number of years ago, we realised the importance of people who broke their hip having access to theatre within 24 to 48 hours. And suddenly across the country, there was theatres thinking about, well, how do we make sure that happens? And it happens much more reg- routinely now. Same thing can happen, I think, in this situation. What about rural and remote parents? Yeah, I think that's a very important question because that you know not all situations are the same. And obviously, if you're living in a remote area, the, the concern about going into labour without a doctor nearby uh, is a very real issue. So those sorts of discussions need to happen with the obstetrician or the midwife and a plan put in place that works for that woman in that environment. I think in all situations, this is a situation where we really need serious discussions throughout the pregnancy about what's best for baby, what's best for mum, and what's the evidence saying that supports that. Professor Ann Duggan, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you. Professor Anne Duggan is the Chief Medical Officer for the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. This is The Health Report and I'm Tegan Taylor. In a country as sunny as Australia, people are generally pretty aware of the risks of sunburn, especially the long-term risk of skin cancers like melanoma, but it's also possible to get sunburned so badly that you need to go to a specialist burns unit. In fact, that's been the case for some 160 patients over the past decade at a group of hospitals across Australia and New Zealand. Sunburn is entirely preventable and burns unit resources are finite. So a group of researchers have been taking a closer look at this and one of them joins us now. Lincoln Tracy, welcome. Hi, thank you very much. Who did you find was most at risk of these really severe sunburns? So the biggest group that we found at risk were children under the age of 14, where almost half of the 160-odd sample uh, that you touched on before were under the age of 14. Are they going to specialist units because they're younger or because it's worse? That's a, a good question, and it's probably not possible to tell from our data at this stage. There are uh, referral criteria of when people should be sent to a specialist burn service, and one of those is uh, for, for children who are very young. However, another uh, aspect of the criteria also relates to where on the body the person is burnt. Uh, so, for example, if they're burnt on the face or on other sense special areas of the body, that does warrant uh, referral to a specialist burn centre. And that is particularly relevant in this case because in children under the age of five, uh, the face was the most commonly affected area, whereas this shifted to the trunk uh, in older children and then lower limbs in, in adults. So there's probably a variety of reasons why um, so many of them are children that end up in these specialist burn centres. Are there certain circumstances that increased risk? Were there things that were cropping up again and again? Uh, so we found that um, alcohol and or drugs were suspected to be involved in 11% of cases, which does, uh, which can contribute, but otherwise... Um, the age was the big risk factor. Uh, otherwise, apart from that, um, approximately two thirds of patients were male, uh, which may mean that um, men are out being exposed to the sun more, uh, either through increased involvement uh, in sporting or leisure activities or risk-taking behaviour or decreased use of sun protection or a combination of those and many other factors. It does feel a little bit weird to be talking about really severe sunburn on the eve of winter in Australia. Does time of year play a play a role? Yes, we did notice a pattern uh, in the time of the year with these sunburn admissions. Uh, unsurprisingly, most occurred within the summer months, being December, January and February, with almost three quarters of sunburn admissions occurring during this time. However, um, there were also admissions noted in November, March, April and August through October. So it really does, um, it really is important to emphasise that um, sunburns can occur outside of the typical summer um, periods where there are lower UV ratings occurring. So the conclusion of your paper is that we need to raise awareness. Uh, Australia has a really uh, big slip slop slap. I'm pretty sure I could still sing the song to you that I've heard since I was a kid. <laughs> like what more can we do to raise awareness of sun protection? Uh, well, I think it's just remembering that um, 
the slip flop cycle is fantastic. It's, it's just important to remember that in some cases um, that you really do need to have all of those aspects. Um, in a lot of cases, just seeking shade is not always enough because sun can reflect off surfaces such as sand, water, or even snow. And in periods of extreme UV ratings, skin can burn in as little as 11 minutes. So it really does um, suggest that there is a need to take sun protection seriously, even if you're only popping out for a short period of time or you don't think it's necessary. So you think that maybe people are thinking more about the long-term risks of sunburn and maybe neglecting this rare but acute risk? Yes, that's that's possible, um, which is a, a very important because, as you said, given that uh, excess sun exposure is a risk factor for melanoma and other skin cancers, and Australia and New Zealand have the highest incidence of melanoma worldwide. These are obviously really severe injuries, but we are sort of, I mean, on one hand, 167 people is a, a lot, and on another hand, over 10 years in two countries, it's not very much. What, what do you hope people take away from this? Why is it important? Well, hopefully it's just important to uh, to raise awareness of the fact that it is rare, but it, it can happen. Uh, and as you touched on right at the top, um, the resources that we have in burn centres are often very valuable uh, and it would be uh, having, being able to prevent, sorry, having uh, injuries such as these, which are preventable from ending up in burn services, prevents um, these resources being taken up for from other patients who may have more severe injuries. Briefly, do you know how much it costs the healthcare system? No, I don't have that. I'm not sure of that off the top of my head. Sorry, Tegan. That's fine. Uh, Lincoln, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. Dr Lincoln Tracy is a trauma and injury prevention researcher from the School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Monash University. Thanks, Tegan. Cancer spreads, so-called metastases, are much feared, but there are primary tumours which often create only two or three secondaries or metastases. For example, bowel cancer may only throw off one or two in the liver and surgeons can remove them with good results. But sometimes the secondary tumours are in inaccessible spots and surgery may not be indicated. That's where radiation therapy might be able to help with intensely focused beams targeting several metastases at the same time in super short courses of treatment. It's called stereotactic body radiotherapy and, is a, and a trial has just reported on its safety. Earlier today, I spoke with one of its authors, Professor Stephen Chumura from the University of Chicago. Well, welcome back to the Health Report. Thank you for having me. In the old days, when you had a spread of cancer, people would you know, give up, say there's no hope. But in fact, there's been a trend to actually treating single spread, so with either radiotherapy, just a single dose of radiotherapy to knock it on its head, or even surgery sometimes in the liver to remove the secondaries with some quite good effects. What's this stereotactic body radiotherapy, and how does it differ from other technologies in radiation oncology? When we talk about kind of conventional x-ray therapy units, we normally think of giving sort of like small doses every day over the course of, say, four to five weeks. And usually these are given in, say, one or two fields, like meaning that the actual beam is coming from a few places only. If you actually talk about SBRT, we are talking about trying to break that up into, say, having hundreds of beams coming in from hundreds of if not thousands of like different angles, all sort of colliding at the center. So it is to try to treat small areas because that's all you can really do, say five to seven 
centimeters maximum in size. And by colliding in the center, it gives an extremely high dose or a hot dose in the middle. And the actual amount of radiation actually falls off really quickly. And it's important because say you have a tumor next to the stomach. Well, you can give a high dose to the tumor and give a very low dose to the stomach. Another key part of the like technology, which is often lost though, is that people are breathing, right? People are moving. Ultimately, it's to try to only turn the beam on as the person's tumor is in the correct spot. So you're like a sniper in a sense with a moving target and you're only going to pull the trigger when the tumor is in your sights. Exactly. And you chose, well, at least one of your targets was a target that moves all the time in your lung. Yes. What the energy oncology group had done, right, is to try to kind of get together hundreds of like institutions and then try to come up almost with a cookbook for how do we define how well you have to hit a moving target and then also how to do quality assurance on that, right? How to make sure that the institutions doing these types of procedures actually hit those targets. So tell me about the study. The Energy Oncology BRO1 study, it's funny, I actually proposed the study all the way back in 2007, right as this idea of sort of sniping single areas of spread was becoming more popular. I was kind of laughed at at the time, but everybody kind of kept with it. So it actually opened in 2014. It was a study which is essentially about seven studies in one. It was to take patients who had oligometastatic either breast, prostate, or lung. And by oligometastatic, you mean there's only one or two secondaries? Yeah, actually up to four here, right? So the point of this here was that we knew that people had been able to say effectively hit one thing most of the time, but how would we design a study to hit, say, three or four things at a time? We came up with sort of a cookbook to say, well, okay, so how could we do this aerotactic thing, and not just on a single spot, but on three to four spots at the same time. If you have hundreds, if not thousands of beams coming in from all over, well, then you could start to cross the beams. So you could imagine if you had a tumor in the lower part of the right lung and the upper part, well, you may have beams crisscrossing. So we had to come up with a way to define how you would do that. And then also the fact that each of those spots could even move independently. So basically it was designed to assess if our sort of cookbook could be applied across hundreds of institutions and to see if it was actually safe to treat three to four areas at the same time. And in a variety of tumors. Yes, it was in breast, prostate, and lung cancers. And what did you find? So first, we had a set of quality assurance and all of the institutions had to prove on a pretend patient that they could in fact hit these targets. And then after the quality assurance was done, we then also did a real-time checking of like each plan by the principal investigators prior to any patient being treated. And we found at least in our sort of defined time point, which was six months of serious adverse events, that it was actually 0%. We follow the patients, though, because so many lived a very long time and some are still alive. And we found that three to four years like down the road, though, some sort of long-term like toxicities are, in fact, happening. So say we had a perforation in the small bowel or we had closure of the esophagus, which had to have a surgical procedure to be like dilated. 
none were life threatening per se, but I think it shows that, you know, especially in medicine, you have to do long-term follow-up because it is quite easy to think something is safe and it's critical to do these expensive trials to really follow patients long-term. And just finally, there's been a trend to what's called hyperfractionated radiotherapy, which is higher energy, shorter courses. With radiotherapy to single metastases here in the bone and in your spine, you know, it's often just a single dose here. Is this just a one-off dose and you're done and dusted or is it a long course of radiotherapy? It's somewhere between like a one to five like doses. Probably most are the three fraction realm. Probably 80% of the SBRTD delivered on the phase three trials, at least in the US, are in fact three fractions. So short and sweet. Short and sweet and done. Yep. Thank you very much. Thank you. Professor Stephen Chimura is a professor of radiation oncology at the University of Chicago. And to see whether or not they are these, uh, this style of radiotherapy is actually going to save lives or prolong lives, uh, more like it, um, there are phase three trials going on now. And we'll bring them to you when they get some results. Now, there are many vaccines under development in the hope of becoming the second generation to follow the existing ones or indeed fight the variants each year. The problem is the extent to which these vaccines will have to go through repeated extensive trials or whether there's another way to seeing whether they work. A recent study suggests the answer is yes, and it was published in the eminent journal Nature Medicine. But the findings may also help with tracking how the pandemic is evolving, especially with variants. One of the authors was Professor Kanta Subarao, who's a world-leading virus and vaccine researcher at the Doherty Institute in Melbourne. Welcome back to the Health Report, Kanta. Thank you. So you were looking at something called the neutralising antibodies. What are neutralizing antibodies? Just trips off the tongue, but you know, just <laughs> right. a lifetime of research. You've got to, you know, <laughs> ninety seconds to tell us. Yeah. So um, antibodies are um, are molecules that are made by B cells, which are immune cells in the body, and they respond to any antigen, any protein can elicit an antibody, and so pathogens like SARS coronavirus two will elicit antibodies when you when you're infected or vaccinated and we are specifically looking for antibodies that have a functional characteristic that can actually work to block infection and so those are called neutralizing antibodies and they are often the um, mechanism by which viral vaccines work so if you can have a vaccine that induces antibodies that neutralize the ability of the virus to infect cells, it will block it in its tracks and protect the person from becoming infected or becoming severely ill. And so you, there's been a lot of work on this, so you looked at candidates for neutralizing antibodies. Right. So we, this is a collaboration um, that was led by um, Miles Davenport at the Kirby Institute in Sydney. Um, and we are collaborators. So my lab does a lot of neutralizing antibody assays. And um, Miles Davenport and David Curry and Deborah Cromer um, were the people who put this, um, did the modeling part. And so what they did was they looked at all the vaccines that had already been through phase three clinical trials, where we had some idea of how effective they were. And then they tried to connect that with how much neutralizing activity was induced by those vaccines. And this is, you know, a, at a time when we didn't really have an international standard for these antibody assays and people use different assays, but 
everybody essentially benchmarked it to the titer that was detected in people that had recovered from COVID-19. So what we did, what they did, was they took the data that was published and tried to compute what that would mean. And then they modeled that and essentially figured out what sort of antibody titer you need to be protected. I mean, you say... so when you say so, so when you say sorry to interrupt, Kanta, but when you say tighter, yeah. you're talking about really the level, the level, of, the level. A, of antibody. So exactly. what, did, what did they or what did you as a group find? So what we found was very interesting that you really need only about twenty percent of the level that's achieved in people that recovered from COVID nineteen to be protected from infection, and you need even less to be protected from severe infection. Really? So, yeah. So it's very, very um, positive news. I mean, I think, and so I think you said 3%. 3% for, the, for protection from severe illness and 20% for protection from infection. And they've modeled this. Um, and essentially, this, the neutralizing antibody levels were highly predictive of protection. So something doesn't quite fit with what you've just said, because when you look at the performance of the vaccines, um, I mean, people are saying, well, these vaccines actually perform better than the natural infection, um, which means that they get you know, a better, neutral, presumably a, neutral, a better neutralizing antibody level. And yet they're not, sometimes they're not that great at preventing infection, particularly with the new variants. Right. So that is, that's an important point because all of these, um, the data that were put into this model were based on the original vaccine virus. This was all done before the variants Wuhan, so appeared. So this is the Wuhan virus. Yes. So this was done before the variants appeared. So just looking at what antibody titer or level you achieve in somebody who's recovered from infection or following vaccination, and then looking at their at the ability of those vaccines to protect. Now, these, these, this sort of calculation will have to be repeated for variants because we do know that some variants are less easily neutralized by antibody made against the original Wuhan strain. The other thing that we know is that the range of, of um, antibody levels in people that recovered from infection can vary from pretty low levels in somebody who had a mild infection and much higher levels in somebody who had a severe infection. So there's a range. And now the WHO has an international standard. So I think it'll be critical to include that standard. And then so we're all talking about the same thing. Now, the key thing here is the hope that you could use this to decide whether a vaccine is going to work rather than have to go through a, a, a huge inexpensive trial. Yes. So that is the hope. We've been all look, all of us have been looking for something that was, is called the correlate of protection. And so we're trying to figure out, and we know this for other vaccines, we know what sort of antibody level you have to aim for so that you don't have to do a phase three efficacy trial for each, each time you make a vaccine. Um, and as you said in your lead-in, that with the second generation vaccines, it'll be really critical because, you know, we, we are going to need to prove that they work. So it'll be very handy to have a blood test that can tell predict effectiveness. Um, we'll leave safety there just hanging as a question, but how does... Oh, absolutely. I mean, everything, the safety is, is crucial. Safety, safety must be, Particularly yes. if it's a new technology vaccine. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. And just finally, how will it help track the variants? It won't necessarily help track the variants, but we have to establish what the relationship is between 
the neutralizing antibody levels and protection from variants. So if you're talking about a vaccine made against the Wuhan strain, and we will we are they're in the process of doing this right now, is to try to figure out what sort of what reduction relative to the Wuhan strain will translate to what sort of change in effectiveness. And that we is all going to have to be based on data. So we have to wait till we have sufficient data to be able to draw those conclusions. Well, we'll have you back when you've got that data. Thank you very much, Kanta. Sure, thank you. So that's uh, interesting, Tegan. That's Kanta uh, Subaro, who is at the uh, Doherty Institute. She runs the reference lab on influenza, major viral researcher. Certainly have to have her back because there's lots of fascinating data there on the, vi- on the variants. I think it's taken us a little bit of time, but uh, we're all getting our head around the fact that COVID is here to stay and that we're going to need vaccines for it basically in perpetuity. Yep. So for podcasters of The Health Report, now's the time for questions. That's right. That's our special mailbag section that's just for you, podcast listeners. And of course, you can ask a question by emailing us, healthreport at abc.net.au. And you can also leave a comment there, as David has done. Actually, Norman, there is two different people called David who've both written in about one of the segments last week. The interview that you did with Christina Warriner about ancient, well, primates, tooth um, and mouth microbiomes. So, uh, And the continuity thereof through tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of years. That's right. And one of the things that you mentioned or that she mentioned was that the reason why they can find these is because it's trapped in the plaque on those ancient teeth and then they can look sort of underneath the plaque and see what... Uh, germs are still there. David One is saying uh, it's exploding at least partially many of the writ large laws of dental hygiene that have been instilled into David over his 76 years. What pain and bleeding gums we have endured while plaque was ripped from our teeth, doing us harm, not good. Swilling and gargling of mouthwash, killing those oral bacteria. I think he thinks um, the, the message that he's taken away from the interview is that he should stop brushing his teeth. No. I mean, possibly you can go too far in decalcifying that, but I mean, I'm not a dentist. What I know about uh, dentistry could be written on the back of a molar. <laughs> but the why you wash your teeth is to remove food particles uh, from your mouth, and sometimes that requires flossing and interdental brushes and things like that to get rid of all that. So you don't have carbohydrate there eating away at your at your teeth and causing dental decay. And mouthwashes, there aren't many dentists who would recommend a mouthwash. You've got to be very careful with mouthwashes, particularly ones which contain alcohol, because there is a relationship maybe with cancerous change inside your mouth. So most people would say, don't bother with mouthwashes. If you're worried about oral odour, you know, um, bad breath, then make sure that you've drunk enough. And chewing gum, non-sugar chewing gum is really good for dental hygiene. So that's why you do it. And you brush with a fluoride toothpaste, which protects the, uh, the enamel layer in your teeth. That's why you do it. You don't necessarily do it to remove plaque. Um, but maybe David One is a bit overdoing it. <laughs> but then plaque, I mean, it's not good. The dentist wants to scrape it off my teeth every time I go and see them. Yeah. Why is that? Well, I think the more plaque that you've got, the, the less room you've got between your teeth and the more opportunity there is for food to get stuck there. And therefore, if you clean away the plaque, um, really the main damage is to the paleopathologists that find, <laughs> find you in 10,000 years' time and wonder why <laughs> Tegan Taylor just has got no relationship with ancient apes. Absolutely clean mouth over here. And so the other David, um, also enthralled by Christina Warriner. And it was a great interview. It was, it really, was really And there's a long version on the 
podcast last week. Definitely recommend scrolling back through your feed and listening to that one. So David has done his homework, checked out Christina's other papers, looking for information on scientific explanations of kissing. Why do humans kiss each other? Were we trying to figure out a way that we were checking whether our oral microbiomes were compatible? Uh, David wants to have an answer for his 12-year-old granddaughter for a lifetime pledge to never kiss the prince in her school play. I think it's a. I think it's a great idea. I think you, you and I can take this on as a major project going into the future. <laughs> I'm not kissing you, Norman. No, no, we're not going to kiss. <laughs> There's no kiss, and but I can, you know, the the theme music behind it is, starts to become obvious, and we'll we'll work it out. Yeah, it would be interesting to know why. It's a kind of weird thing to do when you think about it. Yeah, the biology. And so is of most of the things smooching. humans do. <laughs> And so another question on a different topic from Marilyn, who's um, interested in uh, Well, just before you go on. Yes, I mean, yes. It, it could explain the, uh, the triple or double <laughs> kiss, you know, air kiss on the cheeks that you have in Europe, you know, and you increasingly see in Australia. You know, I'm not going to put my mouth anywhere near your mouth. Thank you very much. Yeah, especially now more than ever during COVID times, which leads mm. us very seamlessly, sort of, into Marilyn's question, which is about uh, coronavirus vaccines. Of course, you can check out our other podcast, Coronacast, if you've got coronavirus questions. But uh, Marilyn's asking, what evidence is there regarding the safety and efficacy of getting a boost with Pfizer after you've had two doses of AstraZeneca? We don't know. The British are doing a study, which hopefully will come out in the next few weeks. We keep, we keep on waiting for it, which is about mixing vaccine doses after one dose. So one dose of Astra followed by Pfizer. And the preliminary findings there are that you get a really good immune response. So you get a good antibody response, going back to the point that Kanta Sabaro was making a moment ago, which is that you're looking for a very strong neutralizing antibody response. And they seem to get that with the Astra first, Pfizer second. It may even be larger than you get with two Pfizer doses. The price you pay may well be more immediate side effects, a sore arm, maybe feeling a little bit more lousy after the second dose, although that's, uh, there's a second study which suggests that might not be the case. But after two doses, nobody knows, and I'm not sure there are any studies ongoing into that. But we keep hearing that we're probably going to need booster shots maybe annually, maybe every couple of years. It's going yeah. to be with something, right? Yeah, and I think that what you can assume from the one-dose study, assuming that these are safe, is that the, the booster dose is going to be fine. And there are plenty of studies with mixed brands of vaccines and types of vaccines in other situations where you do seem to get an enhanced immune response. So it's likely to be fine. And another question that refers to a story that we had last week, it comes from Di, uh, not our great producer, Di Dean, but a different Di, who's saying we mentioned the risks of prolonged sitting to health. We had that story last week with David Dunstan. Uh, Di asks, what about all those people who have to sit all the time in wheelchairs and people with poor mobility? Di says moving for them is not often an option. And to that I say, being in a wheelchair doesn't mean you can't exercise. No, that's right. I mean, Difficult if you're quadriplegic, but nonetheless, it, it is possible. And uh, as the Paralympics shows, so it is possible, but it's, it's a challenge. And there are certain exercises that you can get prescribed for you if you are a wheelchair user. You can actually also listen to our other podcast, other ABC podcast called Sporty, where they've actually had a couple of different episodes about exercising in a wheelchair. And like you say, Norman, um, some of the elite athletes that do so. Yep, and they look pretty fit from where I sit. <laughs> Fitter than me. One last question from Mark. Uh, Norman, you've talked about the Mediterranean diet a lot. Uh, you've articulated the fact that it's not just the food, but how it's cooked and the total meal. Mark has bought a, a cookbook called America's Test Kitchen, and re he's really enjoying it. Of interest, any indigestion that he's had has completely disappeared. His average sleeping pulse rate is dropping 
blood pressure is also dropping. He's feeling great. Great. You must be giving good health advice that's based in evidence. Yeah, and is America's test kitchen nicking my ideas? I mean, I'll just have to go and check, you know, to have a serious <laughs> look there. No, it's absolutely the case. And what you get with um, these diets where you, you're cooking with fresh herbs, um, olive oil, you're eating, you're taking vinegar with your salad dressing and so on and a bit of fermented food during the day, is that you're reducing oxidative stress and uh, oxidative stress reduces inflammation in your body and is a good thing to do. Well, you're making me hungry, Norman, and we have to go and find some Mediterranean food to eat now. That's right, but make sure you cook it first. That's right. Well, that's all from us today, but you can email us again anytime, healthreport at abc.net.au. And we'll see you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.